Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. So our first scripture reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. And shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Matthew 24, 36-44. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken, and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The word of the Lord. So how's everybody doing? Doing okay? Good, good. So uh, I don't feel very good about this because I'm up here by myself again, and it's not what it used to be. So Judy, do you want to come up and just talk alongside me? Okay, that sounds good. That'll make me feel better. So uh, recently I was going back and I was looking at all the things that I've done over the last six plus years that I've been here. And I realized that I have done 21 different sermon series since I've been here. And I know you remember every single one of them, don't you? Right? Have them memorized by heart. And I realized that there was actually one little blight on my record, which is that I've never done an Advent series that is based around the lectionary. Now, that's for good reason. If you don't know what a lectionary is, basically all that says is it's a list of scripture readings that a pastor can use for a given Sunday. A lot of pastors, Judy used that for a long time, a lot of pastors will use that and it says, here's the scriptures you can use for this week, and you go, you use them, and you preach on them. The reason I don't particularly like them very much, no offense to you, Judy, is the fact that it seems kind of random. They're kind of all over the place. There's not a lot of consistency from week to week, which is why I tend to preach in series, because then we can build on the ideas together. But when I was looking at Advent, I planned this stuff a year in advance. I was sitting down, I was looking at the lectionary, and I thought to myself, you know what? There's something here, something really good, because what the lectionary does is it builds to Jesus' birth in the form of an epic. Now, an epic is something that usually has things like 
prophecies and messengers and heavenly beings that come from the sky and family drama. And by the way, does that sound like Jesus' birth to you? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So, it's this trajectory, this Christian epic has this trajectory that it's moving towards Jesus' birth. And that's why I have called this series The Chosen One. The Chosen One. And so each week the drama will build and we will get a better sense of who it is that is helping to bring the prophecy that we're going to talk about today to fulfillment. So this series, I want you to understand one thing before I dive in today, which is that each sermon has a dual effect. So the first part of the sermon is to focus on the character. There's going to be a character who we're going to focus on and how that character brings us to the fulfillment of the prophecy. Got that part? All right. The second half of the sermon is going to focus on how that particular character allows us to understand God working in our lives. So the idea is is that the path to Jesus's birth is also the path to help us understand God's purpose for our lives. Do you understand that? Okay. So Today, we are talking about a prophecy. And what is a prophecy? A prophecy is a prediction of something that is going to come in the future. Yes? Yes. Okay. Now, the prophecy that we're working out of today comes to us from the Old Testament. If you are not familiar with the Old Testament, let me give you a little bit of context. The Old Testament is broken into three main parts. First part is known as the Torah. That's what, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The second major section of the Old Testament is called the histories. This is the history of the founding of the nation of Israel and its ultimate demise. And then the third part is known as the writing of the prophets. It's a very large section, so we have the various prophets who are writing at the end. Now, the prophets, when you think of that, Do you generally think a prophet is a fortune teller? Somebody who is talking about the future. That's what we tend to think, right? Okay, but I want you to understand that that is actually not the case. A prophet was not a fortune teller. A prophet was not looking into a crystal ball trying to say, okay, what's going to happen? He's not coming up and saying, hey, can I read your palm? I want to see what's going to go on there. That's not what a prophet does. A prophet in the Old Testament was an advisor to kings, helped kings make decisions. Very similar to how the president of the United States has a cabinet that helps the president make decisions on domestic and foreign policy. So the prophet was trying to help a king answer questions. Should we go to war with this nation? Should we sign a treaty with this one? How do we quell domestic unrest right here when people are rising up against you? Questions like that. Now, the difference between a presidential cabinet and an Old Testament prophet, is that the Old Testament prophet was thought to have a very close connection with God. And that actually came with some benefits. Because if you were a prophet that was thought to have a particularly close connection with God, then the king was much more likely to listen to you. Because in the ancient world, life was very much out of your control. You felt that you really couldn't do anything. God was in control of everything. So if you listened to that prophet, you had more of an opportunity that maybe things would go your way. You with me so far? All right. Prophet we're talking about today is a man named Isaiah. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard the name Isaiah before, yes? 
I'm sure some of you in here have read some things out of Isaiah. Maybe you've even read the whole book of Isaiah at one point in time. But for those of you who are not familiar with Isaiah, let's talk about who he is for a second. So Isaiah, he, we don't actually know when he was born or when he died, but he's pretty much in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C. And this guy, he served as an advisor to as many as four different kings. We don't know that for sure. Many scholars believe it was at least two. Now, what we do know for sure is that he was married, had three sons, and that he is considered by Christians to be the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Now, why is he considered to be the greatest? He's considered to be the greatest by Christians because when he wrote his book, the book of Isaiah, some 600 years before Jesus' birth, Christians believe that his book talks about Jesus himself. Basically, it is telling us that Jesus is going to come into the world. And we know this because in the Gospels, Isaiah is quoted some 25 different times by the Gospel authors. And what they are saying is they're using his book as proof that Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to be the new king of Israel and the savior of the world. So, even though Isaiah wrote his book for a very specific time and place, what Christians believe is that those words are being used by God to point to something other than the original event. Let me give you an example. So, this is what we read a little bit earlier. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. All right, the original context that inspired these words, the original event that inspired these words, was that the king of Jerusalem, he had made a decision to sign a treaty with the nation of Assyria so that the Assyrian army would not come in and decimate the city of Jerusalem. You with me? Okay. So he decided to sign this because the Assyrian army, they were brutal. I mean, they would absolutely take you out. And so he decided, you know what? I'm going to make a decision. We're going to sign this treaty, and then we'll be safe. Now, Isaiah, he was not super thrilled about this. In fact, he had told the king of Jerusalem, hey, don't take this deal. Don't do it. But the king, he went against that advice. And so, the first chapter of Isaiah, if you were to pick up your Bible and read the first chapter of Isaiah, it's him going on a tirade about how the king shouldn't have taken this deal. And that because he took the deal, that ultimately God is going to reject the people of Jerusalem. So that's what you would read about, first chapter. Then you get to the second chapter, which is what we read this morning, and he's calmed down a little bit. And now that he's calmed down... He says, okay, well, just so you know, God's not going to reject the people of Jerusalem forever, okay? Just so you know, it's going to be okay. And at some point in the future, what he's saying here is that Jerusalem will eventually be brought back to prominence, and it will become an epicenter of peace, love, and justice in the world. Now, when Christians read this text, what you have to realize is that when they look at the he, who does the he who do, they, who do we think the he means? 
Jesus, right? So, Jesus shall judge between the nations, right? He's going to be the one who's going to bring peace, love, and justice to the earth. So this prophecy right here is the first part that lays the foundation of Jesus' story. So even though it was written 600, 700 years before Jesus' birth, Christians believe that it tells us what Jesus is going to do. You're with me so far? Okay. Now, there are two possibilities of how this prophecy could be fulfilled in our lives. The first has to do with what we read in Matthew. And Matthew is about what? Jesus' second coming. Jesus literally coming back from heaven and imposing a world of peace, love, and justice. The second way, the second possibility of how this could happen, is just as dramatic, but it would happen in a very different way. And to talk to you about the difference between these two things, I need to talk to you a little bit about this idea of a savior. So we use that word a lot, don't we? Savior, savior, savior. What is a savior? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What is a savior? A savior is a person who saves someone or something like a country or a cause from harm or danger. That is a savior. Let me give you an example. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're driving down a country road in the middle of the night. You're driving down the road. It's 1 or 2 in the morning. You're by yourself. You don't have anybody with you. And as you're driving, you're getting sleepy. And all of a sudden, you fall asleep at the wheel, and you drift off to the side of the road, and your car ends up flipping, and you end up in a ditch. You are upside down. You are unconscious. You're hanging there by your seatbelt. And there's a fire, unbeknownst to you, that starts in your engine compartment and is making its way towards your gas tank. Now, at the same time that this is happening, a trucker is driving down the road in the other direction, sees the fire, gets out of his truck, goes down, looks inside, sees you on the inside, tries to open the door but can't because it's all crumpled together, smashes the window, cuts the seatbelt, and pulls you out just before the car explodes. Had that trucker not been there, you would have died. So here's the question I pose to you. Is that trucker your savior? According to definition, yeah, 100%, absolutely, right? He saved you from harm or danger. So yes, he is your savior. All right, I'll give you a little bit of a different scenario now. I want you to imagine that you are a citizen of India in the 19th century when they are living under British colonial rule. Now, the way that the Brits would make sure that everybody was staying in line is they would meet any resistance with brutal force. I'll give you an example. In 1857, there was an uprising of Indians against the British. Do you know how they dealt with that uprising? They massacred more than 100,000 Indians. And that was not the number of people who started the uprising, by the way. They went all out to make sure that nobody would fight back. Another thing that they introduced was indentured servitude. So they came in and they found 3.5 million Indians from low castes, and they sent them all over the world to other British colonies, places like Trinidad and Fiji and Jamaica, in order to help build their infrastructure. 
for free. So living under British rule, depending on who you were, could be absolutely horrible. But then, in 1915, a man named Mahatma Gandhi starts to organize protests against the British, in which you personally participate. And you keep coming back to these protests over and over again. You come back, and things seem to be going better. And then you take two steps back. And then they go better, and then you take two steps back. And it keeps going this way for more than 30 years until eventually the British decide that Gandhi has such a large movement that they're going to abandon India in 1947. I pose the question to you again. Is Gandhi the savior for you and the Indian people? Absolutely he is, 100%. He saved you and millions of Indians from harm or danger. Now, what do both of these examples have in common? In both situations, in both scenarios, you found yourself in a situation where you personally could not save yourself. So in the first situation, you're in a car, unconscious, upside down. Somebody has to literally cut you out and take you from the wreckage. Yes? All right. Second scenario, you personally cannot defeat the British on your own, can you? No, you have to become part of a larger movement of people to make that happen. So again, what do both of these examples have in common? In both examples, a savior mobilized you, either by literally pulling you, physically moving you from the wreckage, or by making you part of a larger movement of people. And this is what a savior does for us. Practically, a savior moves us. Make sense? Okay. So this brings us back to Jesus and the prophecy that we read about him in Isaiah. The prophecy says that Jesus is going to bring us peace, love, and justice. That's what he's going to create in the world. And the question we have to answer is, how exactly is that going to happen? Is Jesus literally going to rescue us from the wreckage of our lives? Is he going to pull us out of the car just before it explodes? That's the Matthew text that we read this morning. That's exactly what Matthew's all about. Jesus literally comes back and is going to physically move us and create a world of peace, love, and justice. The only problem with that way of doing things is that we are passive actors in that. There's nothing we can do about it. We simply have to sit back and wait for Jesus to come so that that prophecy can be fulfilled. The other way that Jesus could fulfill this prophecy is that Jesus could be like Gandhi, stirring our hearts to be part of a movement of peace, love, and justice. So when Jesus becomes your leader, then you decide that you're going to become part of a movement that is going to fulfill that prophecy. Now, I will tell you that as a pastor, I personally find number two to be very inspiring. Because as a religious leader, I will tell you that I feel demoralized most of the time. I work very, very hard to try to change the world for the better. And often, I sit there and I think to myself, I'm not doing anything. I have dedicated my life 
to serving other people. And sometimes when I sit back and I survey the landscape of what I've been able to achieve through that service, there are highlights along the way for sure, but generally speaking, I feel like a failure. And that's why I often feel that I am in need of a savior. I'm in need of somebody who can come and rescue me. And so that image that I gave you of being in an overturned car and you're unconscious and the car's on fire, that's how I feel a lot of the time. And when I feel that way, I often pray that God would send someone to rescue me, to pull me from the wreckage. And in those moments, I want Jesus to be the Savior who comes in and cuts the seatbelt and pulls me to safety. I want Jesus to do everything for me. But it's in moments like that where I realize that's not how Jesus works. Jesus is not Superman flying to the scene of the crime, lifting up the car, pulling you out from underneath. That's not Jesus' superpower. Jesus' superpower is that he has the ability to change hearts. And he's not just changing one heart. He's not just changing a hundred hearts, a thousand hearts. He's changing millions of hearts at a time. Jesus is a savior who enables us to save each other. He inspires us to become part of a larger movement to work together to bring that prophecy to fulfillment. We are the ones who create a world of peace, love, and justice. So if you are sitting here today and you feel that we are living in a very dark world, a world that there is very little hope of ever changing, I hope you will remember that Jesus is your leader and he's calling you to be part of a movement. He's calling you to stand up to speak out, and to work together. So if the prophecy from Isaiah is that we are to create a world of peace, love, and justice, where those things reign supreme, then we need to start working together to make sure that that happens. So this Advent, as you prepare for the birth of Jesus, our Savior, I hope you will reflect on what you are doing to help bring that prophecy to fulfillment in this world. And if you sit there and you reflect on that and you say, I don't feel like I'm doing very much or I'm a failure like how I feel, that's okay because you have to remember it doesn't all fall on your shoulders. It falls on all of us. In this church, you are part of a movement, a Christian movement to change the world for the better. And if you feel that you don't have the ability to make a difference, if you're too tired, you don't have the energy to go out there and do it, lean on your neighbor. And if your neighbor doesn't feel like they have the energy or the ability to make a difference in the world, allow them to lean on you. Because the one thing that we cannot do is sit back passively and wait for someone to rescue us from the wreckage. There is simply too much at stake. Because like you, I want to see the prophecy from Isaiah, a world of peace, love, and justice come to fruition and be a reality in our world. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.